Hey, y'all, we're rerunning two episodes today. Enjoy the show. Hello. Welcome to This Day in History class, where we flip through the book of history and bring you a new page every day. The day was April 10th, 1710. The Statute of Anne, often considered the first full copyright law, became effective. The word copyright was not used in the statute. Instead, the statute was called an act for the encouragement of learning by vesting the copies of printed books in the authors or purchasers of such copies during the times therein mentioned. There had been other instances in history of artists and publishers being protected from unauthorized uses of their work. But the Statute of Anne was a milestone in copyright law. The statute influenced copyright legislation in other countries, like Denmark, the United States, and France in the 18th century. And it was enforced until the Copyright Act 1842 was passed. Before the Statute of Anne, the licensing of the Press Act 1662 gave a guild of printers and booksellers from London called the Stationers' Company the exclusive power to print and responsibility to censor literary works. Authors could not join the Stationers' Company. People despised that censorship and the fact that the Stationers' Company had a monopoly in printing. So a lot of authors and small publishers protested the act and objected when it was time for it to be renewed every two years. The protesters got what they wanted when in 1695, Parliament did not renew the act. So the stationers' monopoly ended. The stationers fought to get the old licensing system back, but Parliament refused. Meanwhile, many authors and publishers were asking for a new licensing system. Writer Daniel Defoe, for instance, wrote in 1705, One man studies seven years to bring a finished piece into the world, and a pirate printer reprints his copy immediately and sells it for a quarter of the price. These things call for an act of parliament, and that so loud, as I hope will not be denied, that so property of copies may be secured to laborious students, to the encouragement of letters and all useful studies. The stationers were losing money, as small printing presses and internationally printed books were cheaper. So the stationers took notice of the prevailing sentiment and decided to lobby for a new copyright statute on behalf of the authors. They argued that licensing needed to be reinstated so that authors could be guaranteed an income. Otherwise, as stationer John Howe put it in 1706, learned men will be wholly discouraged from propagating the most useful parts of knowledge and literature. With the support of authors, the Stationers' Company petitioned Parliament in 1707 and 1709 to write a bill giving copyright to authors. Member of Parliament Edward Wortley introduced a copyright bill in January 1710, after which point many changes and amendments were made to the bill. And on April 5th, the bill was granted royal assent. Five days later, it went into force. The act became known as the Statute of Anne because it was passed under the reign of Queen Anne. The statute said that for any book published after April 10th, an author had a copyright term of 14 years from the date of first publication, with a possible 14-year renewal if the author was still alive when the first term expired. 
A legacy clause gave works that had already been published a 21-year copyright term, starting from the date the statute went into force. When the copyright expired, then the work would move into the public domain. The title of a work had to be registered with the company of stationers for the copyright to be binding. And if someone broke the law, they had to forfeit the bad copies and pay one penny per page, where the complainant could claim half and the Crown would get the other half. Unreasonably high prices for books were prohibited, and the importation of most foreign works was banned. The copyright applied to England, Wales, Scotland, and decades later, Ireland. The stated aim of the Statute of Anne was to bring stability to the book trade, and generally, people felt it accomplished that goal, though the legal deposit system it mandated was not so popular. The statute required the deposit of nine copies of the book at the stationer's company, the Royal Library, or certain universities. The expiration of copyrights in 1731 led the stationers to claim that copyright was perpetual according to common law, and the effort known as the Battle of the Booksellers soon began. Over the next century, copyright law expanded, and in 1842, Parliament passed a Copyright Act that repealed the Statute of Anne. Still, the statute marked the first time printers' mistreatment of authors was recognized, and its significance in copyright history is widely acknowledged. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. And a little note about the dating in this episode. Many sources date the text of the Statute of Anne to 1709, but the correct year is 1710. Keep up with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at TDIHC Podcast. Thanks for joining me on this trip through history. See you here, same place, tomorrow. Hello, everyone. I'm Eves, and welcome to This Day in History Class, a podcast that peels back a new layer of history every day. The day was April 10th, 1815. Mount Tambora on the island of Sumbawa in what is now Indonesia produced one of the largest and deadliest eruptions in recorded history. Indonesia was then a Dutch colony called the Dutch East Indies. Before the eruption, Mount Tambora was a stratovolcano in the northern part of Sumbawa that stood at about 14,000 feet, or 4,300 meters, tall. Radiocarbon dating has confirmed that Mount Tambora erupted around 3910 BCE, 3050 BCE, and 740 CE, roughly. The magnitude of those eruptions is unknown. But historical records show that the volcano was highly active starting in 1812. In early April of 1815, Mount Tambora's eruption began with small tremors and pyroclastic flows. On April 10th, days after the rumbling began, the volcano's eruption became violent. Three columns of lava shot into the air. Ash, rock, and aerosols were spewed into the atmosphere. Strong winds uprooted trees. Pumice stones rained down on nearby villages. Lava hurled into the ocean, killing wildlife and causing tsunamis. Huge fields of pumice formed and floated out to sea, posing a hazard to ships. 
ash and waves destroyed people's boats and homes. The volcano ejected so much material into the atmosphere that it prevented a lot of sunlight from reaching Earth's surface. For the next several days, the area was plunged into darkness. Air temperatures dropped significantly, and ash continued to rain down in the region for weeks. The major eruptions stopped by mid-July. The top 3,000 feet of the volcano were destroyed. A caldera about 3.7 miles in diameter and 3,600 feet deep formed. On the Volcanic Explosivity Index, the eruption is rated at a magnitude 7. The volcano had released an estimated 36 cubic miles of ash, pumice, and aerosols. Most of the immediate destruction happened on Sumbawa and surrounding islands. Freshwater was contaminated. Crops and forests were destroyed. Around 10,000 deaths were caused by volcanic bombs, tephra fall, and pyroclastic flows. But in total, somewhere around 90,000 people died in the disaster, as more died from disease and famine. Countries all around the world were affected in the aftermath of the 1815 Mount Tambora eruption. All the ash in the atmosphere lowered global temperatures, leading to 1816 being dubbed the year without a summer. In China and Tibet, lower than normal temperatures killed trees, crops, and animals. Summer frosts hit the Northeast United States, causing crops to fail and prices to rise. There was more rainfall than usual in Europe in the summer of 1816, which caused crop failures and famine. There's not much evidence that Mount Tambora's eruption affected the Southern Hemisphere, but it was linked to sudden and extreme weather changes in the Northern Hemisphere. Small eruptions at Mount Tambora have been reported in the centuries after the 1815 disaster. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you have any burning questions or comments, feel free to send us a note on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, at T-D-I-H-C podcast. You can also send us an email at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks again for listening to the show, and we'll see you tomorrow. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.